0: Well, I have the joy today of launching us into a brand new sermon series that we're calling Redeeming Work. Closing the gap between the sacred and the secular. And we're going to dig into this for eight or nine weeks. Why? Well, think about it. Think about how much of your time and your life is spent working. After sleeping, there's probably nothing else that consumes more of your hours in a lifetime than work. And yet, when you read books, Christian books, about what's most important in the Christian life, you rarely find any good teaching or comments about work. Oh, you'll find chapters on prayer and chapters on Bible reading and chapters on sharing your faith, and maybe even chapters on marriage and relationships and families and conflict and parenting and maybe even money. But rarely do you see a word or any teaching about work. And so whether it's spoken or unspoken, it's usually unspoken. No one usually goes around saying, oh, your work doesn't matter. But the fact that no teaching happens and no comments are made caused people, I think, too often to conclude that those hours spent in the marketplace or in the home are just wasted. They're lost. They don't count. They don't matter. But is that what you find When you read the Bible, turn with me in your Bibles and I hope you have a Bible with you to Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter one, because it's a book of beginnings, no better place for us to get our bearings regarding this whole issue of work than in the book of beginnings, Genesis and the book of Genesis lays the foundation for us on so many critical issues for life that we need to understand about God's original design For us and the world around us. So I want you to follow along as I begin reading in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. Skip to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden... To work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. First thing I want you to notice is how the Bible, get this, it's worth noting. The Bible starts talking about work as soon as it starts talking about anything. Why? Because it is so basic and fundamental. This whole concept of work. And it's also worth noting the book of Genesis leaves us with this striking truth. Leaves us with this striking truth. We're in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3, right? Has sin even entered the picture yet? No. So here's what I want you to grasp. If you don't get anything else, get this. Work was part of God's original paradise. Original paradise. But that startles us, doesn't it? Because too often we're guilty of thinking that of work is simply a necessary evil or a punishment even. A punishment. But the book of Genesis shows us that it was part of God's original paradise that he created for us. God is a worker and he made us in his own, say it, image to be workers. And it's good. And it's good. And it's good. So you can see we've got some work to do we got some work to do in this series to reorient our thinking about this whole subject. And we're not going to be in a hurry. That's why I've given eight or nine weeks to it. We're not going to be in a hurry. So all I want to do today is just lay some groundwork. And very often, before you begin to address an issue from the scriptures, you have to push off the table the prevalent wrong thinking. That's what I want to do today. So all I want to do is correct what I think are two of the most prevalent ways... Of wrong thinking. Thinking wrong about work. And here's the deal. I see both Christians and non-Christians. Getting sucked into these two prevalent wrong ways of thinking about work. Here's the first correction I want to make. Number one. Work is not a curse. But a calling. Work is not a curse but a calling. Now here's, here's where it gets tricky. Stay with me. Work has been cursed. It got harder after Genesis 3. So we we, we do it now in a fallen, broken world. But work itself is not a curse. Does that make sense? It's just like some people want to say, oh, well, I don't know of any that do this, but it's like, has sex been abused? Can it be abused? I don't know about you. I'm married. Do we want to stop having sex? I don't. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Can it be abused? Has it been abused? Has it hurt people? Has it been used in wrong ways? Yes, but redeem it. Use it according, enjoy it according to God's word. That's what we need to do with work. Work itself is not a curse. It has been cursed and so it got harder, but work itself is not a curse. And you say, all right, Brad, what would it look like if you had the attitude that, oh, work's a curse? Well, Tomorrow, for most of you, just look around in the marketplace. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. What you see going on in the marketplace largely at work is what it looks like when you have the attitude, oh, work is just a curse. When you wait, Here's what it sounds like inside your head. When you wake up just thinking, oh, I'm just living for a paycheck. I got to eat. I need money. So I put up with work. I put up with work just to get the money I need to do the things I really want to be doing when I'm not working. In fact, the sooner I can pile up enough money, the sooner I can pile up enough money to stop working altogether, even better. See, this whole notion, and I see Christians getting sucked into it as readily as unbelievers, retire as soon as possible so that I can build birdhouses and walk the beach and collect shells and really... Really, the Bible does not speak of retirement at all, my friends. That's not a biblical notion. So this pile up as much money as I can to stop working as soon as I can. Often the goal is make as much money as possible so that I can stop working as soon as possible so that I can start doing the things I really want to be doing for as long as possible. Now, maybe as a believer, you wouldn't say it that crassly. But sometimes I find to some degree, even as a Christian, Christians have a sanctified, baptized version of this thinking that you wake up with. So let me ask you. Maybe you're saying, what's wrong with thinking that works a curse? It is hard. It is awful out there, Brad. You get to work in the church with Christians. You've got nirvana. News alert. Christians are difficult. Here's what I think about Christians. When you spread them out, that's why we don't need all of you on staff. They do a lot of good, like manure. When you pile them up, they stink. They stink. It it reeks in here sometimes. Spread them out. Do a lot of good. So what's wrong with thinking that work is a curse? What difference? Maybe you're saying, Brad, what difference does it make whether I like work or not? Oh, I'll tell you what. It it is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And here's why. You and I were designed by God for work. You and I were designed by God for work. And so basically, when you push against this, you're not just opting out of work. You are pushing against a fundamental part of the DNA of what God has put within us as to who you are. Who you are and how did he designed you. You were created with work in mind you were cre- because you were created in the image of God and God is a worker. He's a worker. Look at look at Genesis 2 again. Look at Genesis 2 again. Verse 2. And God ended his work which he had done. Again at the end of verse 2. From all his work which he had done. Look at the end of verse three. From all his work which God had created and made. And then when you jump to 15, he put us in the garden to work it and tend it. There is a connection. We are created in his image. God is a worker. And we bear the image of one who works. It's part of our DNA and part of our calling. That's why it's interesting I'm going to quote a verse that maybe you've heard. That's why Paul the Apostle in his second letter to the Thessalonians says in chapter 3, verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not what? Eat. Eat. Woo. At first glance, that sounds pretty blunt and cold, doesn't it? And make sure you understand he's not talking about, Paul is not talking about those who have legitimate reasons for not working. But folks, is it not true there's a lot of people that could be working that are not. Work is part of our DNA. It's a reflection of being in the image of God and it's good. So Paul is driving home something essential to us. And is this. Your decision and your sense of disdain for work and an unwillingness to work is no trivial thing. It's not just a trivial thing. Like whatever, he doesn't like to work. Because it is a fundamental violation of God's creation design for men and women. See, we're in the book of Genesis, right? We got other battles going on in our culture that can be solved from the book of Genesis. And you see it right there in what I read, that God created us male and female. God made men and women. We're not supposed to decide after we live a little while, I'll decide what I want to be, a male or a female. No, God created male and female. There's a creation design and, and I know Christians, by and large, largely are holding the line on that truth. But I see Christians just give up another truth that's right there. You were also designed in your DNA for work. We should not be the people who talk just like the rest of the world. How oh, you hate your job? You hate work. TJF, living for Friday and the weekend. Oh, I got to go back. I know it's hard. You say, well, you haven't been there. Yeah, I have. I worked at McDonald's. There you go. And I worked in a pool construction company. And I worked in Duff's Smorgasbord. I have worked other jobs. I have other amazing gifts. <laughs> but if, that, if they ever let me go, it is going to be rough. <laughs> Thank goodness the house is paid for. I know it's hard. Don't hear me saying, oh, people aren't difficult. And you, Yeah but you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater don't start taking the attitude and approach that work in itself surely everyone in here i hope young and old to some degree has experienced the satisfaction of working hard right tell me you've had that of doing it and if you haven't you're in big trouble work hard one time see what happens There can be a good feeling whether it's your hands in the dirt, and I've dug five holes to plant white birches, and I had to whack through roots of dead trees that were there first, and I don't give up, and I go after it, and I've got blisters, and my lower back hurts, and I take three Advil, and I limp for days, but it feels good. I worked hard, and I had something done. It doesn't have to be with your hands and in the dirt. It can be. Writing a computer program and working, it can be quality control and you thought of a new way to make this better. It can just be a sense of satisfaction. It can be in the home, in ordering your home and running it well. The reason that feels good is because it is good, because it is God-like. God's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And as you are a reflection of this God, you're an extension of God and a fellow worker with God in his world that's what's going on don't don't reject work as a curse you're created in his image and it is good so it's interesting in the book of book of Genesis what I just read did you know it shows us how God set us apart from every other creature in the universe to do work he doesn't talk this way about anything else in the universe Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner points this out. Something profound, I think, in Genesis 1. Only man, humanity, men and women, are set apart and given a job description or an office in the creation account. Did you notice that? Plants and animals are just called to team and reproduce. Human beings are the only ones explicitly given a job Description. God called them to subdue and have dominion and rule the earth. In other words, we're the ones that were given a specific work to do because we're created in God's image. Let me make another comment about this so that you don't make the mistake of thinking okay, so God created me in His image for work i think i'd be a lot happier i just believe i'd be a lot happier and freer if i could get out from underneath this burden of work i want freedom i want fun let me tell you just like with sexuality right our world is convinced if sex is good let's just do it any way we want with whoever we want for as long as we want but it's destructive when you use it that way It's in the DNA, our sexuality, but you find freedom and joy using it within the guidelines and the guardrails that God has given us. The same will be true of work. You will not have joy and a sense of freedom by pushing out from under this and considering it a burden. You'll never find joy. You'll never find purpose. You'll never find that sense of meaning that you're looking for by rejecting work altogether. If that's you, here's what you need to understand. God made you to work, designed you for work. And so you just won't find that sense of satisfaction and joy and purpose and meaning outside of that design. Here, here, our country is one of the few countries that has an epidemic of this, what I'm about to say. Boredom. So many countries, you don't have the privilege or option of being bored. You so have to work to just come up with your next meal. It's only America that has afforded this freedom from our luxuries and our wealth to have bored people that are bored. I'm bored. I'm bored. Listen to me. Boredom is never the result of a lack of entertainment. Notice, just we've got all kinds of options on entertainment, and it's just. You grow weary of it. Boredom is the result of a lack of meaningful, say it work. 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 It's good. It's good. That's why G.K. Chesterton said, "Meaninglessness. Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary. Of pleasure. We've got such a pleasure oriented culture. And we've got people that are growing weary in it. And they think the answer is more pleasure. Just more pleasure. More pleasure. There will never be enough. For you to find real joy. And meaning and purpose. God made us to work. Now don't hear me saying. The other ditch. That it's wrong to recreate. It's wrong to take a break. It's wrong to just have pleasure. No, 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 no. But when you try to make the goal to just get as much pleasure as you can, often pleasure is most enjoyable when it comes on the heels of having worked hard. And then you take a pause and you, even that word recreation, it's not a bad word. It meant to recreate, recreate. God knows us. He did not mean for you you to work all the time, all the time. If it's good, just work all the time. That's a different problem. But we're not seeing that quite as readily as the problem of, oh, it's just a curse, I want to get out of it as fast as possible, for the longest as possible. But let me touch on something also that too few Christians, I think, understand as well as they should. Your work matters to God, regardless of how important it is in the eyes of the world. Regardless of how important the world thinks it is, your work matters to God. Whatever it is you're doing, inside the home or outside the home, inside the church or outside the church, Dorothy Sayers was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and in an excellent essay she wrote entitled, Why Work? She gave a lot of thought to how followers of Christ who have embraced the gospel ought to see their work. And she says this, quote, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to moral instruction and church attendance. Let me help you know what she's meaning. Your carpentry has nothing to do with glorifying God. We got to get you faithfully attending church. We need you leading a small group. We need you teaching a Sunday school class on Sunday. It's all these other things are the only things that matter. It's confined to moral instruction and church attendance. What the church should be telling him is this. That the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Yes. Yes. Wherever you are, you ought to be one of the best. You ought to be one of the best. Not like, oh, this doesn't even matter till I get to my break and I get to say, Jesus, to someone. The actual hours I'm spending doing what I've been paid to do just don't matter. I can look, this this just ticks me off everywhere I go. Whether it's landscapers that I see or other people working different jobs. Look at all the people robbing from their employer on their stupid phone that have stepped around the corner, and I don't mean for 30 seconds, I mean for long, long minutes. Get off your phone. You are working and someone is paying you. And if that's you, Christian, don't let me see you. I will just rebuke you publicly and turn you in. I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell. Put your phone away and be the hardest worker. And what is so important? Oh, my word. Answer your friends on your break. Answer your friends when you get off. Everything is not an emergency. Be the best worker. And be good at what you do. And be focused on what you do. And do it unto the Lord. Because you're not working for a paycheck. And you're not working just to please the man. You are working because you are a reflection of your creator, God, who is a worker and you are his image bearer and you're bringing his presence into this world, not just to testify about Jesus. Some Christians act like what they actually do just doesn't matter until they can hand out a track or give a gospel book or talk about Jesus on break. Don't hear me saying not to do those things. But the actual work you do without ever saying the word Jesus Matters and you glorify God as you do it. Work hard. Be good. Get additional training. Keep growing in whatever it is that you do and learn more about it. That is not a waste of time. See, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the the Reformation where Luther nailed the thesis to the Wittenberg door. But the Reformers were not just trying to reform the church. Yes, the Catholic Church had gone wide of the mark And he was trying to bring it back to justification by faith alone. You're made right with God by faith alone. When he gives you the righteousness of Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. But they were also trying to reform. It was bigger than that. They were wanting to reform the mindset of Christians regarding their work. Because the Catholic Church had drummed it into the heads of everybody that to be a cobbler, to be a farmer, to be anything else that was not sacred didn't matter. And the reformers wanted to reconcile that and and reform that and break down the unbiblical, because that's what they are, unbiblical categories of sacred and secular. It was Martin Luther himself, the same guy that nailed these theses to the church door, that said, when a housemaid sweeps out a home to the glory of God, she glorifies God every bit as much as the minister on Sunday who preaches a sermon from the pulpit, Martin Luther. It matters. It matters to God, whatever. If you're here and you're a politician, you're in government, you don't have a secular job. Stop saying that. Who am secular job? Daniel. Read your Bible. How much of it? All, All of it. Daniel was a, in politics, in government, not by his choice. He was drug away from his homeland and castrated, by the way. Eesh. But he still served joyfully under three different pagan administrations. For decades, he served in a position of government with three different, not godly, no Christian fishes on their chariots, pagan administrations doing some really bad things. But there was Daniel being a Christian in that context. Could it be awkward at times? All I think it was. Remember when he was told to bow down to the statue or to not pray to anyone? And he went home and he opened his window and he prayed anyway? Yeah, there were awkward moments he had to work through. But he didn't get out and say, Christians can't be in this arena. Nehemiah. Yeah, we know that he helped rebuild the wall. He was the governor. Read your Bible. Joseph, right? The story of Joseph. In a very real way, folks, Joseph was vice regent or vice president of the most powerful nation of Egypt at that time. A Christian And he wasn't just, oh, talking about the God of Yahweh, but he's an idiot regarding planning. He was brilliant regarding planning for the famine, and God used his gifts of administration and planning to say what to do that might not seem very spiritual, but news alert, the Messiah was going to come through the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel was going to starve as Jacob and his sons were starving, and yet they came over to Egypt and they were fed, and... There's always something bigger that God is doing, you guys. Now, don't hear me saying the next Messiah is coming through your job, so work hard. No. But just know there's something bigger and more going on. And God made you in his image to bring order out of chaos, beauty out of brokenness, and some relief to suffering. When you work hard, you glorify God and you serve others. You glorify God and you serve others. We need more Christians. If you're a sales rep, you don't have a secular job. If you're an engineer, you don't have a secular job. If you're a carpenter or a mason or an electrician or a plumber or an editor or a computer programmer writing software and solving issues. If you're a quality control man or woman, if you're an artist, if you're a graphic designer, I could just go on and on and on because there is no spot in God's marketplace that does not matter where God shouldn't be glorified. And that's why Christians should be out there in every corner. Not thinking, oh, until I get to church on Sunday in small group one night this week or serve at New Hope Center on Thursday night, nothing I do matters. We've got to banish that kind of thinking, and I think we might perhaps begin to see the church and Christians make a greater impact on our world. Our thinking too long has been we got to get them to come to church. We got to get them to come to church. I hope you do invite people, but you know what would be so powerful? If when you invited them, they also had this thought. They are so good at what they do. And their attitude is so different. I'm interested. Why do they do this? Why do they do this the way they do this? We've got to stop thinking. See, the, the word secular, if you look it up. The word secular, the definition is simply an attitude or an activity or a thing that has no religious or spiritual significance or basis. Well folks. There's no area in this entire universe or world. That God is not ruling over. So every area that a Christian touches. And uses. And, and, and steps into. In a way that honors God. Matters. So there's nothing secular. I think we need to, we need to start thinking in terms. Instead of good versus bad. Good Versus redeemable. How can we as Christians redeem that area? How can we redeem that? How could God use us and our presence there to redeem? And make sure you don't hear what I'm saying. Not saying. I'm not saying, oh, we can redeem it by on our break sharing the gospel. Perhaps you will do that. I hope you will. But you can redeem that by, as an image bearer, being the best surgeon. Being the best Physician's assistant, being the best Hygienist at that dentist Being the best landscaper And mower, being the best You're redeeming That area, you're representing God A little image bearer in that Area That's why I love the title of Paul Tripp's book Instruments In the Redeemer's Hands Now I know the book is about biblical counseling And it's a great one But I believe the title could apply to any area based on the principle we've drawn from the book of Genesis. That ultimately, we are instruments in the Redeemer's hand wherever God has placed you. In that classroom, assisting students, in that rehab place. Wherever it is that he has you, you are an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. Reflecting him. I love... I love what the Grammy award-winning rapper Lecrae says about this. He says, quote, there is no such thing as Christian rap and secular rap. Only people can become Christians. Music can't accept Jesus into its heart. So I'm not trying to make Christian music or secular music. I'm just making music. Now, so this may freak some of you out and you've heard me say things sometimes. That's why your pastor listens to other kind of music other than just Christian. Gasp. Yes, yes. I try to avoid the F word and bad things that are being said, but I just love good music. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Christian music sometimes is not so good. I love good music. Good music and good stories and good books and good movies. Everything doesn't have to have God right in the middle of it and share the gospel and have a Bible verse And we should have nothing to do with it. No, just music when it's good. Because listen to what he says. I'm just making music. Hip-hop, like all music, is a good thing. I could use it for evil by filling it with violence and misogyny and profanity. And a lot of the rap is, right? Misogyny, by the way, is, is degrading women. So so much of rap music is filled with that. His is not. Does he need to flee that arena and just do overtly Christian music? One of his albums debuted number one on the billboard charts. Number one. He's out there making good music that other people in that arena would say, it's just good. Minus violence, minus profanity, minus misogyny. That's what God's people should be doing. That's what we should be doing and how we should be living. He says, sure, you, could, you can use it to glorify God. Every song I write doesn't have to have the gospel spelled out or quote scripture so that people will know that I love Jesus. My goal is to just use my gifts to produce great art that tells the truth about the, the world. If I see the world through a biblical lens, the music will naturally paint a picture that serves God. I mean, that serves people and honors God. That's it right there. Whatever you're doing should serve people and honor God. Should serve people and honor God. So work, there's the first mistake. I want to push strongly off the table. Work is not a, say it. It's a calling. It's in our DNA. It's what makes you like God. It's what sets you apart. You don't see, you don't see golden retrievers get organized in the neighborhood, right? And start living for a cause, and saying, you know, we, we got to stop being so random. Who's going to chase that Jeep Monday? Who's going to do it too? Let's get better organized. Let's have fewer deaths. Let's figure out how to do this. Let's have proper training. We lost Freddie last week. we gotta, we got to think about this. I know we love it. I know it's in our DNA, but let's do it safer. They don't do that because they're not created in the image of God. But why is it that, that we have this desire to make things more efficient and to bring about order and to systematize and to it's a good thing. It's because you are made in the image of, say it, God with dignity and worth. And He wants you being a fellow worker of His in His world. But there's a second wrong way of thinking. It's not, work is not a curse, but you can swing way over this side and get in trouble if you make too much of work and you allow it to swallow your entire identity and I have no meaning or sense of who I am apart from work. Work's not what I do. It's who I am. That's, that's an imbalance. Number two, work was never meant to be your identity, but a way to glorify God and serve others. You say, Brad, what do you mean by don't let it become your identity. Well, let me, let me illustrate it for you with an historical example that was captured in the movie Chariots of Fire. In this movie, if you know it at all, and it's based on history, there were two young men, two young men, big contrast between these two young men who are both athletes and are both striving to win a gold medal for the British Empire in the 1924 Olympics. They're on the same British team, have the same desire, training in the same way, but two very different motives and reasons for why they're working so hard, why they run the way they do. If you know the story, one man's name is Eric Little. He was preparing to go to the mission field and he wanted to be a missionary in China. And at one point in the movie, his sister confronts him because she thinks thinks that his focus on athletics is getting in the way of his preparation for the mission field. And as she confronts him in the movie, he responds with this. He's like, Jenny, Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe that God made me for a purpose for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, is that just bogus? God doesn't care about you running. Get out there and hand a track to somebody and do it slowly. Slowly. Folks, I hope you know the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. Who gave Eric Little the ability to run that fast? God. Whatever you've got, whatever you're good at, wherever you're talented, God gave you that and you can use it to the glory of God. Later in the movie, the other man, big difference, Harold Abrams. There's this scene where he's getting a rub down from his best friend, coach, trainer, right before I run, and he says this, quote, I'm 24 years old and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. And then, because he was a short distance sprinter, he said this, when I run, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Now, do you hear the difference? One man, both gifted, they both went on to win a gold medal. But one ended joyfully. The other, even though he won, was filled with emptiness. Why? It's never enough. If you are trying to prove yourself and your entire identity is consumed with what you do, it's exhausting because it's never enough. There's always someone better. I got to get training already now. I got to keep going now. Someone's getting ahead of me. You take that into the marketplace, right? You can be good at what you do and do it to the glory of God, but that is not the same thing as I'm good at what I do, but who I am is tied to this and I'm constantly trying to prove That I'm worthy. I'm trying to prove my existence and that I am good. And that I am. That is one of the most dangerous, exhausting, depressing ways to live. Because listen to me. Your very identity and sanity and career and success. And even if you're successful, ability to sustain that success. Are so fragile in a fallen, broken world. And you can work hard. Do you not know this? You can work hard and there still be factors that you could not control. Oh, don't say work is a curse and run from it. But don't let your very identity become consumed that it's not just what I do, it's who I am. Or you will constantly just live being driven, 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 driven. It's never enough. You won't know how to rest Let me illustrate what I'm talking about, and I have permission to share this with you. Someone in our own church family emailed me recently about a painful situation at work. And I want you to hear how they worked through this, because there's some excellent takeaways for all of us to say, how should I respond in moments like this? He says this, last Friday I experienced something in my work life that has never happened, a demotion Not only a demotion, but one that was given without warning or a previous indication that I was doing anything but performing with excellence. Having experienced 20 years, this is not a young pup writing me. Having experienced 20 years of continual success had bred an expectation in me that success was normal and to be expected. That amount of success breeds a certain amount of dangerous self-confidence. However, that's not the real point I want to share with you. As with all things painful and jarring in life, there are really only two possible responses. Turn to God or away from God. Thankfully, he graciously brought me to himself in this trial. Just this week on the radio, I heard C.S. Lewis' quote about pain, where he says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God began shouting to me when I received the unexpected demotion at work. But Saturday morning, as I was studying my Bible and praying, hit pause. I, I don't want that to go unnoticed by you. People hit tough stuff, and I can't tell you how many times I, say, I just can't even read the Bible. I'm so discouraged. Are you reading your Bible? No. Dumb. Sorry, I'd like to be more gentle, but just dumb, 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 dumb. You cannot stop reading. He turned to the scriptures in his pain and confusion and disorientation, not away. As I was studying the scriptures and praying, the phrase, a beautiful wound, came alive as I contemplated Christ's sacrifice on the cross. His wounds were beautiful because they would bring you, me, and millions of others into a saving relationship with him. They were beautiful because Isaiah 53 tells us that he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. I have honestly never experienced the depth of pain and confusion as I did that day on my job. God, however, knew where I needed to be struck. What would drive me to him and bring about a freedom that could not happen otherwise. New thing I want you to note. Worship on Sunday was especially sweet. Same thing I hear people say, oh, I I, I just had a terrible week at work. I didn't come on Sunday dum 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 okay i'm just being honest with you you've got to still go to the scriptures and you've got to still push with your pain into corporate worship and be here with the people of god be here for a word from the lord Be here to sing songs with a broken heart. Do not pull back and cut yourself off from the means of grace. These are means of grace. The scriptures and prayer and God's people and corporate worship. Worship on Sunday was especially sweet. I share this with you honestly because I feel compelled to. Almost a need to shout how good God is in the midst of hard things, no matter what form they may take. I only understood in theory before, but now I understand in fact that God is closest when the pain is greatest. Psalm forty thirty four does say, he draws near to the brokenhearted. He draws near. But you gotta grasp the means of grace. Keep taking advantage of the means of grace. Now here's the point that I want you to get. This was painful for this man. Very painful. He's saying it's honestly one of the hardest things he's ever been through and confusing, right? He had to wrestle with the scriptures. He had to tap into God's grace to push through the pain. But listen to me. If his identity had been tied up in his job, in his constant promotions, in his accolades, in his achievement, this would not have just been painful. This would have been devastating. His undoing. Do you see the difference? Oh, listen, men and women make such a mistake when you allow your entire identity to become consumed with who you are, with what you do, instead of it being, no, I I have a separate, there's a me apart from my vocation. Work is not a curse, it's a calling. And work should not consume all of who you are as your identity. There should be a separation. Work is a means by which you can glorify God. ...and serve others. So let's talk about that for a minute. You can glorify God when you do any kind of excellent work. Any kind of excellent work. Listen to what John Coltrane says. John Coltrane was considered by most... ...one of the greatest jazz musicians of the 20th century. And those that love jazz and study it and talk about it... ...would say that his album, A Love Supreme... ...was his greatest work and is in fact one of the greatest jazz albums ever produced... So I think it's interesting on the liner notes of his album, A Love Supreme. He says this during the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. Note: he stayed in the jazz music industry. Some of us would think, oh, richer, fuller, more productive life. He became a youth pastor. (laughs) He started serving at the church. No, he stayed in music and jazz. But listen to what he says. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly ask to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. To inspire them to realize more and more of their capacities for living meaningful lives. Because there certainly is meaning to life. That's a Christian worldview. And he said, I'm taking that with me into my music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God and it was after that moment that he produced his greatest work and if you know anything about jazz let me help you if you're totally non-musical it has no words (laughs) so he didn't start to produce things for the glory of God by saying Jesus every other line it's music there's no words But he did it with a heart to glorify God and to bless other people and enrich people. And God used it for his glory. And he did it for the glory of God. And it was once he wasn't trying to prove himself as the greatest jazz musician. When that's your goal, it's exhausting and usually not very effective. He wanted to glorify God and bless other people. As C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, listen to this. You will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what kind of impression you are making. If you're that man or woman who's constantly thinking, what do they think of me right now? What do they think of me as I do this, as I say this, as I do this? Exhausting. And you don't do good work. It is freeing. It frees you not to be sloppy, not to be lazy, not to cut corners. It frees you to do some of your best work when you stop worrying about what everybody thinks about it and you live for an audience of one one you do good work good work so listen if there is no god sure and there's many who are saying that sure just eat drink try to be merry and maybe you would conclude one of the ways to happiness is get out of as much work as possible as soon as possible But if God exists, and he does, and you know it, Romans 1 tells me, and he created us in his image as workers, and he did, then you can joyfully throw yourself into your work, whether it's ever public and gets you any accolades, or whether you serve a lifetime behind the scenes and it's unsung, unnoticed, unseen by anybody but God. But God sees it and you are his fellow worker in this world. And God takes pleasure in what you're doing, whether it's wiping a runny nose in the home or producing good software or selling a good product or closing a deal or knowing how to make things better and do things better. You glorify God. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 says, Paul, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I know in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, it's Christian ministry. Based on Genesis and our creation design, I think we can apply those verses to every part of God's world, wherever God has you, be steadfast immovable, always abounding, don't, don't call it secular, you are abounding in the work of the Lord as you teach Spanish to students, you are abounding in the work of the Lord as you run a tire place and you sell good tires at a good price and you organize it and you get people doing what they need to do and you're friendly and you do it with excellence, you are glorifying God it's not in vain it's not in vain. Stop saying it's just a waste. We just sell tires. It's just a waste. I just write this software. It's just a waste. I just, it's not a waste. It's not a waste. But, here, but listen to me. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here, by the way, and that you would give us this time. But I don't want you to think new thoughts about work. You'll never get there. You will never get reoriented as to the way you think about work until you first get reoriented as to who you are in relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Start there. Start, oh, listen to me. Start there. Who is Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus? Is he your savior? Are you in a relationship with your creator God through his son, Jesus Christ? When you start there and you by faith trust in him, oh, he'll begin to reorient you on all kinds of things, including work. But don't go out of here and try to think differently about your work. If you don't know Christ and you're not a Christian, come to Christ. Come to Christ. But if you're here and you're a Christian, I want to press you for a minute. Do you need to repent? Have you been that Christian that's guilty of thinking, oh, those are just wasted hours. The only part of my life that matters is Sunday and small group night. And if I carve out another night to serve at New Hope Center or Fairhaven or a Christian parachurch ministry, what I actually do with 40, 50, 60 hours a week doesn't matter at all. I'm calling you, and I believe your Creator God is calling you, to repent. Repent. Can you imagine the difference we would begin to see Christians make if they went into the workplace thinking that this matters, that this is God's realm, and I get to be His representative? I would put it to you this strongly. If Jesus is not Lord of your work, he's probably not Lord of your life. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your word that reorients us on so many issues that we would not conclude the right way without a word from you. And the workplace is so broken and so messy and so complex and so hard, our feelings would just say, this is all bad. So thank you for your word that says, oh no, no, no. Broken, yeah, but that's why I have Christians to redeem, to redeem it, to bring some order out of chaos, some beauty out of ugliness, some, some relief in the midst of all this suffering. Oh God, may you fill us with your spirit not just to teach Sunday school classes and lead a small group, but fill us with your spirit to make the best tables and write the best software and teach the best in a classroom and be the best trainer and sales rep and be the best artist and be the best wherever you have us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.